0: (laughs) Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're feeling happy, healthy, and safe. A few weeks ago, I celebrated the 800th episode of this show with a look back at some of my favorite interviews from the run of the program. Today, I have a few more I'd like to share with you. Later, we'll hear from EDM superstar Moby on what it was like to live next door to someone he calls the greatest musician to ever live. I'll speak to an actor who was nominated for an Academy Award even though the entirety of his part in that movie only consisted of 17 lines. But I'll guarantee somewhere, sometime, you've quoted one of the lines. It'll do, Pig. We'll hear from everyone from Cheap Trick and Johnny Rotten to Rick Mercer and many, many more. First, let's kick things off with the musical memory. Remember the safety dance? We can
1: dance if we want to. We can leave Thank your you. friends behind. Cause friends don't dance, and if they don't dance for well, the no friends of mine. Say we can go
2: and we wanna place they will never find. And we can act like we come from out of this world, need though the one far behind. We can dance. Of
0: course you do. The Men Without Hat song was a worldwide hit in 1982 and earned them a Grammy nomination, but it didn't end there. It has since been covered by everyone from Weird Al Yankovic, to the cast of Glee, to a recent version by Angel Olsen. Now, I always thought that the song was about safe sex or doing your own thing, but the song's writer and lead singer Ivan Doroshuk joined me from his home on Vancouver Island to tell me the true origin of the tune. It had more to do with the bouncers in Montreal discos in the 1970s not liking the way he danced than anything I ever thought of. I was reading this article about you. It talks about dance being very important to you when you were growing up in Montreal in the 1970s, going out dancing and that sort of thing, but the safety dance, which I always took as simply being about the message being about do what you want, you know, express yourself however you want to do that, but it was actually about something a bit
3: more physical, right? Yeah. Well, the, the, the true story is that I was getting kicked out of, it was, it was, it was the end of disco. It was the beginning of, of new wave. And in the discotheques, they'd still, they they were playing disco music, but they would, they would slip in like Blondie's Heart of Glass or right b52's rock lobster or something like that and i would get up with my friends and we would start pogoing and obviously it was a new concept a lot of people didn't know what we were doing they thought a fight was breaking out so we 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 would we were getting kicked out of clubs for 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 pogoing during the new wave songs and i i went home and this thing this song just popped out of my head just Slipped out of my fingers.
0: The band Cheap Trick have sold 20 million albums. They have 40 gold and platinum certifications for 16 studio albums and have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. For many people, the first introduction to the band was through their album Cheap Trick at Budokan. The 1978 live album was originally supposed to be released only in Japan, where the band was far more popular than they were here in North America. When it took off over there, it was released here and became a giant hit, and was later named as one of Rolling Stone magazine's 500 greatest albums of all time. Cheap Trick founding members Rick Nielsen and Tom Peterson joined me to talk about what it was like to be big in Japan and the impact of that record on their lives and careers. Cheap Trick comes together. Uh, you you're playing here. You're not having a, a huge amount of success. I think it's fair to say understatement again. Understatement. Yeah. But then in Japan, you're kind of the American Beatles in Japan. And tell me about, Tom, going to Japan for the first time. Well, we were shocked that we had that. Well, we knew we had
4: success. Otherwise, we wouldn't be going there. But we didn't really quite realize how extreme it was. I mean, yeah. it was so extreme that it, it was exhausting. You, couldn't, <laughs> you could not do one thing. You couldn't look out of the hotel window. You couldn't go in the hall. You couldn't go to restaurants. You couldn't do anything. Wow. And it was it was great,
5: but it went on for that went on for a few weeks when we were there the first time in nineteen seventy. before wow. that though, like we had uh, "Clock Strikes 10, which mm-hmm. got no airplay any place except there. That was number one. "I Want You to Want Me" was number one. And so we were getting airplay, which we weren't getting any any place else. Hey, why Why do you think it clicked in Japan?
4: Well, you know, you you don't really know ever. Yeah.
5: There's no uh,
4: certainly no formula, but they said that they had this. I think they they got a kick out of kind of our cartoonish look. Right. I think they thought it was funny, and then they love they love like pop music and heavy stuff too. But they Read they that. like to learn. A lot of people uh, learn English from our records. They told us right. that's how they would learn. Listen to our songs.
5: When you hear the live of Budokan record, when you hear that, it's like. I want you to want me. Right. He says it like that because the promoter said, "Talk slow, so they can understand <laughs> it." Here's a song from our new record. I mean, we don't talk like that, but they told us. And
1: this next song is called "I Want You to Want
5: Me." And we went back in '79, and you know, and played again. It's like we were huge. <laughs> it's well, like it's like we, the first trip we went. In '78, we were, you know, we we're riding coach over yeah. there, and we got to, the, and we stayed in the hotel. I stayed with Tom. Two guys in a room. I mean, I've stayed staying two people in a room since my kid was born. Yeah, you know?
4: been, later, we're thinking about it. Wait a minute. We had two of us each in a room, but they had the whole floor blocked off. Yeah. <laughs> no, so wait a minute. Couldn't we have just taken one of the other rooms? Yeah. The- really. That's it was funny, it was
5: funny yeah, but we didn't we didn't think about it. I mean, we left probably the last show we did was in Iowa. We were all four in a room, and there
4: was no you know there's while well, there was TV, but yeah. it was all just Japanese. There was no right. CNN or anything like that, so it was all Japanese game shows, and that's pretty much it. Sit yeah, in a, your room and, and don't look out the window. Yeah, like, you're,
0: okay. Do you take that time to write songs? What do you do, <laughs> <No. what?
4: laughs>
5: yeah, oh yeah,
0: yeah.
5: I, I don't think we wrote anything there. Oh, it was wait. like it was just pandemonium
4: over
0: there. We were probably nursing hangovers every day so it didn't really matter. The success of Cheap Trick at Budokan was absolutely astounding and life changing. Another artist who had quote unquote overnight success was EDM superstar Moby. He thought his 1991 single Go would sell maybe 4,000 copies. When it sold 2 million copies, his life changed. Here's Moby to talk about how. The success of Go uh, was profound uh, you went from selling uh 1500 copies of a single maybe to selling millions of of records all of a sudden you were an international star you're traveling you're you're playing all over the world but with success uh it it didn't come, it didn't bring happiness along with it as well so when you revisit these songs is it a way of confronting the past in a way and having a look backwards and and have it be cathartic or or what does it bring up in you
6: there there's almost a form of in a way like regained innocence Mm. and what I mean by that and it's all it's sort of based on a David Lynch quote that I heard at BAFTA which is germane to talking about the movie maybe but um I was at a BAFTA event about 13 years ago Fourteen years ago, and David Lynch was speaking, and he said this one simple thing that, to me, was like a Saul on the road to Damascus moment, where he said, "Creativity is beautiful," because I'm sure, as you know, like David speaks in a, his mm-hmm. his movies are baroque and dark. The way he speaks is like a child, yeah. and something about that struck me, where I was like, "Oh, he's right!" Like. I, because unfortunately for a big part of my career, I got very caught up in the idea of career, of record sales, touring, red carpet events, etc. all the ancillary stuff, thinking that that was going to generate happiness. And what he reminded me is like, there's nothing wrong with the marketplace. There's nothing wrong with the commercial exploitation of creative of of art music what have you but that has to be an afterthought you know the the creativity itself has to be the raison d'etre for why you're making things and that was such a so it was a good reminder of that and remembering that like for me like I expected career to deliver happiness and it didn't Mm -hmm. whereas art consistently has has delivered whether I'm not talk, whether it's making music, whether it's listening to other people's music, like some of the most transcendent emotional moments I've had have been through other people's music or being in a studio working on music, and I had sort of ignored that by unfortunately becoming a little bit too fixated on career.
0: One of the great pleasures of doing this job is getting the chance to sit down and talk to people who you otherwise would never in a million years ever have the chance to meet. One of those people for me was Johnny Rotten, aka John Lydon. I grew up listening to the Sex Pistols, I loved Public Image Limited and I loved being able to take just a few minutes out of his day to talk about what it was like to make all that music, to make all that racket and how he sees himself after changing the way we listen to music to a certain degree, how he sees himself today. Here's John Lydon. Do you think that the image that you have of yourself, we've not met before and, and
5: uh, oh no no! I, li- I get a great answer for you here, Okay. Madam Two Swords at the Rock Circus. Right. They they asked to make a waxworks of me. Yes. And so you know you have to stand there for four hours while they slowly move you around and take photos. When I walked around this waxwork doll of me, which right. is apparently uh, identical, that was an odd thing. It's something I recommend that everybody have done. Was it humbling or was it what? Did, what was it? All these other things, and you look at your shoe size, and oh, <laughs> yeah. and the way you hold yourself physically, and how, you know, how like Richard III I really am.
0: If you are a regular listener to this show, you know that whenever I have anybody on that's even tangentially related to David Bowie, I have to pump them for information. I've got a couple of clips here that I want to play for you first is from Donny McCaslin. He was the band leader and saxophone player on the album Black Star. That was the 26th and final album by David Bowie. It was released worldwide on January 8, 2016 to coincide with David Bowie's 69th birthday. It also happened to be just two days before David Bowie passed away. In this interview, Donny McCaslin talks about what it's like to work under
2: that long shadow that a musical legend like David Bowie can cast. From the moment he walked in the room, I, I I felt something that that was that was consistent throughout the whole time that I I was worked with him and knew him, which was he was utterly focused. From the moment he walked in the room, you know, he just sat down and was totally present and not like big personality I need to talk I need to like no it wasn't that at all he was very self contained and just present and you felt his presence and it was really warm you know and, and I loved it and so we started talking you know at a certain point and and uh, I guess he I, I think he mentioned the gig and, and he asked me for my contact information so he pulls out his book you know <laughs> I'm writing down my cell phone number and my email address which just wow. seems crazy to me you know and we talked, and 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 he was just, uh, you know, warm, and 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 just a total true gentleman. Well,
0: he casts such a long shadow, yeah. That I think it's probably very easy for people to be intimidated by working with him. So maybe that's a defense somehow of a mm-hmm. being warm, mm-hmm. gentlemanly, courtly, almost. Because mm-hmm. if not, people may just freeze up around right. him.
2: Right. Right. Um, so that was that was that was kind of our first meeting, and then and then um, he emailed me the next morning, checking to see if this was my email address. I responded affirmatively. Then he sends me another email right away, that is um, succinct, incredibly witty, <laughs> and the essence of it was saying, you know, it would be. It would be a dream for me to record two or three songs with you and your band. Wow, and, you know, and he sent me his home demo version of "Tis a Pity She Was a Whore." Wow. wow, so you know that was that was probably the moment where I just stared at the computer, you know, and you know I looked at that three sentence email or whatever it yeah. was, and and it took me about an hour and a half to respond <laughs> with two sentences, yes. you know, but yeah. I was like, honey, can you come over Get <laughs> my wife involved? Can you give me, can you go look at this? This is cool. You know, you want them to be the right yeah, words. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. You know? Um, so, and, and that was how it started over the course of the next few months. He sent me, I would say six or seven songs. And, um, I just tried to internalize them as, uh, as much as I could, you know, every element. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, I, I thought. I'm not sure what's going to happen when we get in the studio. I've never worked with him, so let me just totally immerse myself in these songs so I feel free to go in any direction he wants to take it. Right. And and so the freedom for me would come would be based on this immersion. And um, that was the process. Honestly, I felt the pressure of, you know, I'm kind of overseeing this and I'm, yeah. you know, and Dave's, you know, sometimes looking to me, "What do you think?" and, you know, so I just I just wanted everything to be so great. When you are preparing to do
0: all these things, you emailed him and said, listen, I'm listening to your old catalog. I'm listening to Ziggy Stardust. I'm listening to Hunky Dory. I'm listening to all that. And he emailed you back and said, don't do that. Yes. That's yeah. not who I am anymore.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Basically, he's like, yeah, I am in you know, that's old stuff. I'm into this, you know, other stuff now. And and so I listened a little bit to um, to Heathen. Yeah. You know, but but I also thought, and and I also was thinking like, you know, he's not, because as I started to listen to that, all that, all that older stuff, it was having an effect on me a little bit. And I was thinking, like, you know what? He doesn't, he's not hiring us to do that. He's hiring us to do what we do. Yeah. And I didn't lose sight of that. And his email was affirm was that notion, like, no, I'm just going to keep doing what I do. I'm going to see what he's sending me. I'm going to filter it through the lens of my own musicianship based on my history, my musical language. And I'm going to go forward that way. We've been talking about Black Star,
0: and I know that you've talked about this a, a, a great deal, uh, but is there a, a sense that you had while you were working on this album that it was some kind of, of elegy for David Bowie? It was his last recorded work. Mm-hmm. He was not someone that recorded. It wasn't Jimi Hendrix that recorded every single musical idea that came out of his head. You know, and so we're still hearing new Jimi Hendrix music. He was very sort of precise about what he released and how he released it. Yeah. Uh and after he passed away there was commentary about the lyrical content and that it felt
2: that was there ever a sense of that? It's it's a it's a complex answer in a way, because I I in some senses, when we were in, in the studio, I wasn't focusing so much on the lyrical content because I was more being a person that reacts more to the overall feeling of music. Right. That's more where I was. And I was like looking at him and he was singing and imagining my saxophone as sometimes like a pillow around his vocal. You know, I was yeah. thinking it more in those terms and more reacting to the emotional energy that he was putting out in the studio. Definitely, though, when you look at the lyrics and, and, and in hindsight, when I look back, you know you, th- those themes are, are present. So I do, I do, I do see that side of it. And also, though, I mean, I remember in my last conversation with him, we were talking about recording new music yeah. in January. You know, he was working on new new songs, and he, you know, said he wanted to record again as soon as possible. So, so I think both of those. Kind of coexist mm-hmm. to me. I mean, that there was the narrative of, of, of the themes that you hear in that record are real, but he was still moving forward. Always, always yeah. moving forward. That was saxophone
0: player Donnie McCaslin on Working with David Bowie. Now, here's another clip I wanted to share with you. This is EDM superstar Moby and his personal connection to the David Bowie song Heroes.
6: On reprise, I do a cover version of the song Heroes. And it's inspired by playing Heroes on acoustic guitar with David Bowie in my living room. And it was one of those moments, like he was in my apartment because he was my neighbor. And I worked up my nerve and I asked and I said, do you want to play Heroes on acoustic guitar? And I was ready for him to look at me with disdain and like storm out of my apartment, almost like, how dare you? Like, you know, it's kind of like saying to Michelangelo, like, do you want to just like paint my ceiling for fun? (laughs) Um and instead he said yes sure and so i got to play the greatest song ever written with the greatest musician ever written in my living room because i'm stupid enough and foolish enough to to ask you know like i'd rather i guess it's that question like better to ask for forgiveness than permission you know like just right. ask you know make the request and if someone says no you deal with it but i'd rather ask than not
0: David Bowie is in Moby Doc. There's archival footage of you playing together, and there are amazing photographs of you. And you were friends. You were very friendly with him. He was your neighbor and someone that you became quite close to. Um, it's interesting to be a fan. You call him the greatest musician, wrote the greatest song ever, and then he becomes your friend. What part of your brain do you have to kind of shut off to allow that you can have a friendship and not constantly be? About to freak
6: yeah. out. Um, you have to shut down the normal part of your brain, <laughs> you know, because um, and referencing an old friend of mine who's also Canadian, Mike Myers in Wayne's World. Yep. When he and Garth meet Alice Cooper in Waynes World right. for about 20 seconds, they're holding it together and then they fall on the ground and just say, We're not worthy. Every second I spent with David Bowie. I wanted to throw myself on the ground and just say, like, I'm not worthy. Like, because the whole time, all the time we spent together, we were friends. There was normalcy to it. We were ostensibly peers. We went on tour together Mm -hmm. as co-headliners. Everything I just said should be wrong. Like, there's no part of that that's normal. Like, he's the greatest musician of all time. He was my favorite musician from the time I was maybe nine years old. I'm not supposed to be friends with the greatest musician of all time. If, I'm, if I go on tour, like in my mind, if I was to ever go on tour with David Bowie, I would be cleaning the tires on his tour bus. Like that's the natural order of things.
0: I'm having a look back at some of my favorite bits from the last 800 or so shows. And I thought of this interview that I wanted to share with you. In a career spanning six decades, actor James Cromwell has appeared in hundreds of television shows and movies, everything from the Rockford Files to Succession. But he may be best known for uttering these immortal words in the movie Babe. That'll do, Pig. That'll do. That role, which consisted of just 17 lines, earned him an Academy Award nomination. He joined me in the studio in 2012 to talk about a movie called Still Mine, which is still worth a look if you can find it on streaming. And the conversation soon turned to not only Babe, but the Black Panther Party and much, much more. You don't want to miss this. Here's actor and activist James Cromwell. Um, When did you become... Uh, uh, someone who who because you, we were again talking before the microphones were on the ubiquitous James Cromwell. I see you everywhere. I saw you, Boardwalk Empire. Um, there was a Babe rerun on the other day. I grew up with Stretch Cunningham. I mean, it's just and, and more and like I mean, you're, you 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 are not hard to find these days. <laughs> and uh, but when when did you uh, sort of make a shift into more personal causes in your off time when you're not standing in front of a camera?
7: Um, After Babe, uh, PETA approached me, uh, people for the ethical treatment of animals, Mm -hmm. uh, because I had this film about a pig to do some work with pigs. The 4-H pigs were elementary school children raise pigs and keep them for the year and name them and get to know them and appreciate their intelligence and their sense of humor. And and then when they leave school, uh, come back the next year, that pig is gone. That pig's been slaughtered, which is devastating to a lot of them. And then – Increased, actually, I had I hired a publicist because some a sound engineer said to me, when I was looping another project, he said to me about Babe, that's an Academy Award performance. I said, Come on, man, I got <laughs> seventeen lines. What are you talking? About? He said, Believe me, it's an Academy Award uh, performance. So I got. I thought, Well, this will probably be my only shot. I hired a publicist, and one of the things the publicist said to me was, "What are your causes? What What do you want right. to?" well i never had celebrity to spend up until then which is what you have to do with celebrity otherwise it eats your soul so but when people stick microphones in your face it's really nice to have something worthwhile to say besides i'm doing this i'm mm-hmm. doing that i feel this way i feel that way so i got involved with the lakota indians on the pine ridge reservation with death penalty focus i came when i came up in the theater um, I was very political. I was involved in the anti-war movement, uh, Black Panthers. Uh, I went down south during uh, Freedom Summer, um, and so. But I had left that behind when I had my family. It didn't seem to be available to me. Right. What celebrity does is give you the opportunity to see if you can make a difference, and uh, that's what I've been trying to do.
0: Right, you were involved in the committee to defend the Panthers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that must—I mean, I, I can't imagine those times. And how – there, there, it must have – felt did it feel dangerous? It, it must have felt
7: yeah, it was not that, comfortable. I said – and I was giving a speech at Yale and I, I sort of went through my career and I realized that 11 people nationally were assassinated in the nine years I was in the theater. President Kennedy, his brother, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, uh, Bobby Hutton, uh, Fred Hampton – the little girls in the Birmingham church, mm-hmm. uh, Mickey Schwerner, who I played football with in high school was in Mississippi. When I was in Mississippi, they were missing. We knew they were missing, but we didn't know they had been killed. Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, uh, which is, and they're being killed. And the FBI responding is probably the reason that they didn't try to kill us right. because they would have killed us. Um, you know, but you, 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 You know, it was sort of a learning process. I I was just a theater actor. I was this white bourgeois kid, you know, from the north, and I had no idea what was going on. But you learn. Luckily, my ignorance probably protected me. Um, The Panthers, of course, made sure that you got political education so you knew sort of what you were doing. You could never answer the questions, you know, uh, why is America a paper tiger the way they answer answered it because they lived it on the street. Mm-hmm. But you did learn. I remember the, at the end of that experience, you know, they, the Panther 13 had been sent to jail, been set up by a, a federal organization called COINTELPRO, and um, they were to be sent to jail, and then they would be killed in jail by another con, and that would get rid of the Panther leadership. Well, there was an event. Uh, the minister of information came from the West Coast to try to resolve the conflict between Eldridge and— Bobby Seal, uh, he was arrested, uh, and as he was being arrested, he handed the forty-five automatic that he carried for his own safety to a friend of mine whose father was the lead violinist in the New York Philharmonic. When the prosecutor was stood before the judge, which I went down to see, he said, "We're arresting Mr. Williams on." Uh, A Sullivan violation of the Sullivan Act, which is carrying a firearm across state lines. William Kunstler, very famous lawyer who was defending him, got up yelling, you're lying, you're lying. And I'm sitting there. It never occurred to me in everything that I had learned growing up that people lied in court, which is something that black people understood. They understood the lies begin from the moment they're born but that the police lie, the prosecutors lie, judges don't judge fairly, juries are manipulated, and uh, this is a revelation to me. So, uh, and then I let it go, and I've come sort of come back to it. I'm getting more riled up uh, about the pipeline. I must say. Well, uh, you were you, you and, and you sort
0: of put your money where your mouth is there yeah. uh, with the criminal record now, right?
7: I got a criminal record.
0: Uh, yeah, I've got a file. <laughs> You've mentioned Babe a couple of times. I have to tell you, 17 lines. I didn't know. Amazing, isn't it? I didn't know 17 lines. So were you one of those actors when you got the script? Do you you take the yellow marker and go through it? Hey,
7: wait a minute. I don't even use the yellow marker, man. (laughs) I just flipped through the pages, and I I said, I can't. This is stupid. This is going to be a film they put peanut butter in the animal's mouths. It's a kid's story. But my friend, my dear friend Charles Keating said to me, hey, listen, it's a free trip to Australia, and if the movie fails, it's the pig's fault, not your fault. So what you got to lose? So well, I did it. Well, you know, it's
0: so – because you never know what's going to hit. You know, you no. never know what's going to grab people, and that'll do pig. I mean, it, people must say that to you. A lot of people are very touched by that moment. Yeah. I was touched by that moment. That was actor and activist James Cromwell on this very special edition of The Richard Krause Show where I'm having a look back at some of my favorite conversations from the last 800 or so shows. Now, just before the release of the Oscar-winning Everything, Everywhere, All at Once film, I had the pleasure to speak to one of the film stars. He's a guy who would also go on to win an Oscar for his work in the film. His name? Ki-Hue Kwan. You know him as Short-Rand, the plucky kid companion to Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, and from a cult role in the classic comedy adventure The Goonies. We talked about his 20-year break from Hollywood and the movie that brought him back into the biz.
8: 2018, when a little movie called Crazy Witch Asians came out. And I remember watching it three times in the movie theater and I cried every single time. I cried because it was a, a great movie. It, it was it was it with great characters, but I also cried because I had serious FOMO. <laughs> You know, uh, I, 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 I so wanted to be up there on the screen with all my fellow Asian actors. And really, it was really then that that the idea of getting back to my roots started taking place. Um, and so one day I call up an agent friend of mine um, and ask him if he want to represent me. And this is after decades without an agent. And he said, yes. Two weeks later, literally two weeks later, <laughs> I got a call about this project, everything, everywhere, all at once. And I read it, absolutely fell in love with the script, and in particular, this role, Wayman. I thought it was written for me. Uh, and I wanted it so bad.
0: What a year ki hu had after we did that interview. Keep in mind, we did this interview at the very beginning of the movie's life. After it had just been released, it wasn't a big hit yet. It hadn't gone on to win all sorts of Oscars and he certainly hadn't made the big comeback that he ended up making, which culminated in winning an Oscar. An incredible year for a really good guy. I'm glad I got to share that with you. Now let's hear from Nick Offerman. He's an actor who plays heightened characters on television, like Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation. But in an interview we did last year, he gave me some down-to-earth advice about how he copes when things spiral out of control. Here's Nick Offerman.
1: All along, my um, I, I've, I've had to learn uh, that the reason, if I was ever unhappy, it was because... Um, i was focusing not on what i had but what i didn't have and uh and eventually somewhere in my in my 20s it really clicked for me where i said oh this uh, what you've been given this body this uh, voice you know whatever whatever skills or foibles you possess that is all that's all you get to feel better for myself i simplify i i turn away from the world at large you, if you take in too much of the news, even if you have a very happy life, which I do, if you watch the news all the time, it's like, holy son of a bitch. Like, the world is horrible. But if you shut that off, and I'm literally looking out a window right now, and there's a hummingbird uh, feeding on the the buds of this uh, carrot wood tree. Well, maybe that's not so bad, you know. And so I, I simplify, I, I narrow down my focus, um, and I, and I think about my loved ones. So that's just, that's a a trick that I learned from my family. Just generally we do things for each other. There are just gestures. Um, and it turns out that that's a, a form of medicine, uh, and a form of self care that I communicate with my siblings, my mom and dad or Megan or my neighbors, uh, we had a bunch of extra tomatoes last week and i took them to my neighbor and you'd, you'd think i took him a, a a basket of golden eggs like they won't shut up about i'm like okay it's i, I get it like you <laughs> but i mean it was it, the, they loved the gesture so much and they've had three males three meals out of the tomatoes so that's always my my thing is to i'll make a little something uh, a couple days ago things we're having some problems at my wood shop. There's four employees there. Uh, There was just kind of a train wreck. One of our machines broke down. And so I bought everybody lunch. And, you know, it, at the end of it, we still have our problems to solve, but we've been able to say, okay, together we'll get through this. Um, and, And so I, I always just turn to what I can make, what small gestures I can make, whether it's, writing something in my donkey thoughts and sharing it with my readership or uh, or more personally, just making something for somebody in my life.
0: That was some life advice from actor Nick Offerman. Let's finish off the show with a look at Rick Mercer and his legendary comedy show, The Mercer Report. Now, if you remember the show, he went around the country, interacted with politicians and regular folks, and it was always comedy gold. Turns out, it wasn't always as planned as I thought it was. Here's Rick Mercer.
3: You know, there was a person that I really, really wanted to work on the, the Mercer Report. Both Gerald and I did. And when they, when we explained to them what we were doing, he said, you know what? I can't do it. I can't do it. And I was like, why? And he was like, it can't be done. He said, "It just can't. Like, you're going to, you alone are going to travel to two different places in the country every week. And you're going to create two separate segments that are going to air. Plus, you're going to do sketch in the studio. And plus, you're going to, you know, do a rant every week. He said, you're just taking on too much. And, and what happens if you go to talk to this lobster fisherman PEI? and You get fogged in. Or what happens if the piece is no good? What are you going to do then? We're like, I don't know. And uh, he said, you know, he predicted in the first 12 weeks, we would fail to deliver a show. And you know, we went on to do hundreds of shows. We never ever failed to deliver a show, but it was nerve-wracking because when you go to PEI or Graham and M or or wherever you're going, you had to get a piece. So if the weather bones you, or the or quite often people might exaggerate. They'd say like, "Oh, there'll be this this wonderful thing happening." And we'd show up. We go, "Where's the wonderful thing?" And they'd say, "Well, this is it." Yeah, yeah that thousand-pound
0: pumpkin is only is only it's, it's just, it's
3: just 10 a regular pounds. pumpkin. Yeah, that's <laughs> oh well, those things happen. Believe me. But you have to make it work. That's why I love Jan Arden so much because one of the biggest crashes ever was in we were in Calgary, and I can't remember what it was, but whatever we were going to do just fell apart. And we were so desperate because we needed like six minutes for the show. The only thing we had no time, I was like, I guess it'll be, I'll do a tour of Calgary. And then it was like, who the hell am I to tell the country what you know what Calgary's like? You know, I have no voice of authority. And so I called Jan Arden, who I didn't know. And I said, will you do the show and give me a tour of Calgary? She said, yes, yes. She said, hang on, let me get my calendar. And and she was like, okay, so next month. And I was like, no, no, I mean today, Jan. She's like, <laughs> today, where are you? And I gave her the address. She said, hang on. And you know, literally 20 minutes later, she Love pulls her. up in this car and she gets out. She goes, I thought of a bunch of things we can do. I could show you the, the zoo. We'll go backstage and feed the animals. And there's the, the Calgary Olympic Park um, maybe we'll get on a bobsled. She started saying all these things. I was like, Jan, you just can't show up in an Olympic park and say, can we get a bobsled? You can't walk into a zoo. This needs, oh no, it'll be fine. And everywhere (laughs) we went, oh, Jan, come in. And it was one of the greatest pieces and she saved my life. And then she did many, many times after that.
0: Well, I, I love that story. I love that story because again, it's the mother of necessity thing.
3: Jan oh, sure. Arden
0: opens doors but if that hadn't happened something else would have happened.
3: Well, we never we never uh we never failed, you no. know. We and and uh it, it, I don't mean that, but it's like, you know, it was TV without a net. Mm-hmm. That's what it was because it was live every week and I wouldn't want to do it any other way. You know, that was just so exciting. But it was a bit nerve-wracking when you sat back and thought about it. But uh it was a lot of fun.
0: When I think of the Mercer report I always think of you being in zero gravity on a little carpet, looking as though you were riding a magic carpet. Was yeah. that pre-planned or was that in the moment? You had to have the carpet with you. so.
3: Well, we had the carpet. I had the carpet. And, uh, you know, we, by the way, the most fun I ever had in my life was that really? six or seven minutes of zero gravity. Yeah. And in fact, if you realize, I don't say, I say very little in that piece. I can't stop laughing. Yeah. Um but we wanted to do gags but we you know we were looking up like had, had people done gags in zero gravity and not really they uh you know experiments Ooh, you know this is the way it works kids so we we're like okay so the water goes like that so i spilled water all over the place and and then the one of the inspirations was when homer was in space remember he opens the chips and oh, the yeah. chips float all over and we were like that would be great but then we're like, we're basing this on a cartoon. We don't know if the chips are going to like, just because it's in a cartoon. And sure enough, I opened the chips and it was just like in the cartoon, the chips floated around one floated into the cockpit and the, the pilot went, mm-hmm. oh, it was great. But when it was over, here's this like Canadian science plane, when it was over, the plane landed and it was all we're on the ground and gravity's kicked in there was like gatorade all over the wall chips there potato <laughs> chips everywhere it was like the rolling stones had the plane for a, for a world tour or something. <laughs> and they were saying to the scientists well thank you for giving us the ride and they all came in the we, we we took care of the cleaning mail.
0: That was Rick Mercer talking about some of the funny moments from making his legendary comedy show, The Mercer Report. Big thanks to Rick for being part of the 800 shows. I think my favorite line from today's show was from the interview with James Cromwell, star of the movie Babe. When he wasn't sure if the movie would be a hit or not, his agent said, well, if the movie fails, it's the pig's fault. That's a good life lesson right there. Always blame the pig. I'm Richard Krauss. Thanks for listening. Stay happy. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Stay weird. And we'll talk to you
1: again soon.